Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Twitter at Creativity Play and at Facebook as well. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Carrie Loebman, Associate Professor at the Rutgers University Graduate School of Education. Her research focuses on early childhood education, teacher education, play and playfulness, and performance and improvisation in education and teacher education. Loebman is the co-author of Unscripted Learning, using improvisation across the K-8 curriculum. And she'll also be presenting a session at the Creativity, Play, and Imagination Across Disciplines Conference coming up at Teachers College at Columbia University on May 27th. Carrie Loebman, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm wondering if you can pick up, I guess, first on the theme of your book, which is about the role of improvisation, and that's a topic that, that Mary Alice and I have explored several times with several of our guests coming out of different disciplines, so it's interesting to sort of look at that role that that plays in play and creativity and learning, um, all, all of which are topics that you personally work on. So can you say a little bit more about that particular theme? Sure. Um I mean, I come to improvisation in its theatrical form, right, From through education, interestingly enough. I was never a performer, a professional performer, prior to becoming a preschool teacher. Um, but about, I guess about 20 years ago when I first started teaching, I was um, looking for ways to kind of revolutionize my classroom, to to make to find ways to include the children much more in the creating of the environment for learning. Um, I had the experience as a pre, as a child-centered preschool teacher. I often felt like a waitress that I was um, busy providing experiences to children for them to enjoy, but that I wasn't teaching them particularly how to create environments for learning themselves. So I was I was looking around for ways to change that. And I began studying um, actually at the Eastside Institute, where I now work in a um, pro bono basis. And I started studying improv comedy, which is sort of, you wouldn't necessarily see that as a direct connection, except that I knew people who were using improv with children in their work. And the, the great thing for those of you who do improv or know of it, its complete focus is on creating the environment, if you will. There's no environment there in improv until you create it. So if you start a scene on the moon, it's not as if you got a bunch of props or anything that conveys that you're on the moon. It's totally created by the performers. And so I began studying improv thinking that maybe I would learn some tricks or games I could use with kids but actually what ended up happening is it completely transformed how I saw pretty much everything in the world, but certainly how I saw teaching. Um, because, like I said, in improv, you're creating 
somewhat from nothing, meaning the nothing being everything that people bring with them and say and do, and then you use all of that to create an entire world, an entire scene, and really shifted my focus in the classroom from being very being more product oriented, trying to get kids to a certain place. Um, it shifted. It gave me what I was looking for, which was a way to include kids in the creative process because I started seeing everything we were doing in the classroom as an improvisational performance. Um, I didn't even always have to talk about it that way with the kids. It just changed how I related to them. I related to the things they did and said as offers, and I taught them something about accepting and building the golf. So I've been in love with improv ever since. Um, I surprised myself by going on to become a performer on stage for about 10 years, and now I use it constantly as a wonderful tool for reinitiating development for teachers and adults in all walks of life. Carrie, I know that you've written a book on improvisation in the classroom. How do you help teachers to use improv and say yes to the offer? And how has that uh, use of improv helped the classroom be mm-hmm. more playful? Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. Um, Matt and I wrote that book after both of us had been training teachers for a number of years in improv. And we wrote it because we wanted to reach a larger audience. And we we wanted to write something that even people who would never done improv could use. And, um, you know, the book contains about 150 activities that teachers can use with kids and as well as some explanations for new ways to understand learning. And I think what's valuable about the book is, even though, to me, the value of improv is in some ways its pointlessness, its value is in people having the experience of being creators. But in classrooms, pointlessness is not very valued. Um, Schools are all about pointed activity and getting somewhere So we wanted to create a book that allowed for a great amount of pointlessness while giving teachers what they needed to um, meet their curricular needs. So my experience is that the book is a bridge for people. It it gives them concrete activities, like there's a game called the History Bus, where you create an improv scene where each of the character people on the bus is a different person from history, like Marie Antoinette is sitting next to... um, Barack Obama, and what would that conversation be? So it it gives teachers a tool to use to stay with the curriculum, but relatively quickly the teachers who use it tell me they become game creators. Instead of just using the ones in the books, in the book they begin to see that they can create play with children off of whatever they're doing because they begin to get a sense of how easy that is and how much, if you just let yourself go, you can use some of the structures of improv, like Yes And, to create activities. So I think that's one one very important way. And then the thing that you're saying about how do you teach people to say yes, I actually find that much easier than you think. Um, I think it's it's, we live in a culture where yes but is very, very prevalent. People think they're saying yes, but there's always a hedge. And I think when you start teaching people the basic skills of improv, of yes and, they pretty quickly get something they can use playfully in conversation 
that reminds them and the other person that they're accepting the offer. So my experience is teachers embrace it rather quickly. Um, and, and it doesn't mean you agree to everything that people say or children do, but you at least go the step of having that the person is saying it um, and, and trying to make use of it that way. Thank you. You've uh, done some work around this topic of meaning-making and learning, and I think particularly as it relates to play and creativity, what do you mean by that, and what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think about a lot of my work and has come out of the work of um, two of my mentors, Fred Newman and Lois Holtzman, who've built a lot on the Russian psychologist Vygotsky. And one of the things you learn from that is that human beings are both the creators of everything that we do, including language, including society and all of the structures that we have, and we are often very determined by the very things that we create. So we create them, and then they sort of start telling us what to do, the very things that we've created. So I think of play and improvisation as an incredibly valuable way to remind people that we are creators and makers of meaning and not just users users of it. So one example I a little example I would give of that is is well language is a huge example but the specific I'm going to say is a little example. So when babies are learning to speak they're not just users of language, they're constantly creating and making meaning. That the sounds that they made because they're not set in stone yet are very much of a creative meaning-making activity with the people around them. So the baby goes, ah, di ba 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 and the, the parent or the older sibling says, oh, you're hungry, right? And we create meaning together with the baby. But once we learn to speak, we often become very um, entrenched in language, and we, we, we don't play with it. We don't create meaning. So I think one of the values of improvisation, I do a lot of gibberish games where people speak almost like babies, like, in part because I think it really reconnects people to our ability to create meaning and make meaning with each other, and that all of what we're doing when we speak to each other is making meaning together. There, There is nothing embedded in the language as far as we, the, other than what we create with it. So I, I don't think we walk around having that very much, and it leads to very scripted conversations. And I think play and improvisation are incredibly important for reminding people that we can create and make meaning together. When I'm playing with my two-year-old grand twins, Mm -hmm. uh, we often play with gibberish and different crazy stories. Just like I can do that readily with them. And they play, and then I wonder if um, at some point they might grow out of play, like mm -hmm. I see many many kids and adults who have grown out, seemingly out of play. What do you think about that, and is there a problem with growing out of play and growing into seriousness? Yeah. Well, I don't think those are the same things, growing out of play and growing into seriousness. I think there is um, a... Uh, horrible problem with growing out of play for both the individual and humanity. 
And I and I don't think we grow out of it. Um, I, I know there's probably psychologists and experts say that it's a maturational thing. I think it's completely built into our societal picture. And I don't think it's rocket science to say that school has an enormous amount to do with that, that the very things we value with two-year-olds, we tell children to stop doing when they're five and six and seven, um, including stop playing and get to work. And so we dichotomize those things just in the way I was just saying. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a problem with growing into seriousness in the sense that obviously as we get older, we are able to do different things, many of which one could say are more serious. I don't know that that precludes playing with those things. I, I actually think the problem in the world, if you look around, is that we think seriousness is the opposite of play, and it limits, therefore, what we will say or do or try. And I think that is having traumatic, traumatic impact on the world. Um, but... But I don't think it's a maturational issue. Um, I know some people think play goes internal and becomes just imagination. But, again, I think much of that language and understanding of it comes from the very structures we've put in place that essentially say to the 8-year-old child, the very ways you were such a wonderful learner when you were two are of no value anymore. We don't want you to use them anymore. We don't want you to look at the person next to you and copy what they're doing even though they know how to do it better than you. So why wouldn't you copy them? We don't want people to um, make things up, um, even though when children are one, two, three, four, it's clear that everything that they do is making things, much of what they're doing is making things up. So I think we don't grow out of it. I think we're told to stop doing it, and I think it has had a serious impact on how, how and on our ability to grow and develop. Um, and, and I think it has a particular impact on inner-city kids and poor kids whose schooling experiences are often the, the, very, the most constrained and whose outside-of-school lives don't often involve many of the rich play-type experiences that middle-class kids end up getting by virtue of their parents paying for it. So you have an event or a program called Playground coming up in New York and that, that you do regularly, um, and you describe it as a postmodern laboratory for fun and development. Yes, do you not do too this pretentious, because yes. <laughs> <laughs> of what you were just describing, we need this as adults to actually uh, tap back into what we've put aside and been told to put aside? Yes, I, I think that, um, again, m myself and the people that I've worked with over the years think that the kind of playing and pretending. We, we also talk a lot about the value seeing human beings as performers, that that activity that is done by very young children and their caretakers and then later by people who perform on stage, if you will, is way too valuable activity to leave only to those groupings. So, yes, the, 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 the product playground is in some ways a way to, is a way to introduce adults to ways to play with some of the things they wouldn't normally think of as being allowed to play with, or, or certainly only particular people can play with it. So this Friday we're playing around with writing, something which, you know, I think last time I did a workshop like this I asked people, how many people love 
how many people find writing torturous? And I think about 25 out of the 30 people in the room raised their hands. And then I asked how many people like writing or love writing, and probably about 15 people. So there was obviously some overlap, which I'm one of them. Um, but I think that we don't necessarily, especially when we have to write, we don't often re- recognize the ways in which play is very, very important because if we if we're stuck or even if we just want I think of writing as discovering what it is that I have to say. I don't generally go into it knowing what I have to say. But that requires a fair amount of play, much of which I have to do by myself. I'm rarely sometimes I get the privilege, as with the book, to write with somebody, but often you're writing by yourself. So some of it is learning how to create a playful environment when you're sitting alone in your office. Um, so that's, yes, I think, again, young children do that luck because we haven't told them not to, but we, most of us have been through years of both schooling and life in a way that makes writing one of the things that many people don't think they can play with. Carrie, I, I also wonder about, since you're in the academic world, about the relationship between play and learning in academia and with university students. Um, how do you see that? Um, what what kind of pictures can you paint for us? Mm. Um, you know, I think, interesting, at the university, you know, similar to the K-12 school system, I think there's a big dichotomy between play and work. Um, in some ways, I'd never thought about this to you ask the question, but at a residential school, which Rutgers is primarily residential for undergrads, I think students do a great deal of play, and it's seriously divided from their work. And in some ways, I think that probably has something to do with the la- something that tends to produce some of the lack of rigor I think there is in in the American experience of college, because we don't know how to create a rigorous, playful intellectual environment necessarily. I think we do that fairly well at the graduate level sometimes, where people come to reconnect with what it means to play with ideas and play with other people around coming up with new discoveries. But I think at the undergrad level, we continue to make a serious division in a way that doesn't allow our students to enjoy the the play involved in becoming a scholar or an expert in something. Um, In my work, I've I've tried very hard to bring that back into the teacher education classroom, in part because I want to prepare people to be, um, if you will, soldiers in the fight to bring playfulness into our schools. And so I do a lot of playing with them. But I've learned over the years both for what my students need, but also as I've gotten, I think, more sophisticated at this, that that play needs to look different than it looks with young kids. You know, I do a fair amount of improv with my students, but but I also really try to create play around more traditional college experiences, like let's do a performance of a conversation where people are in some ways they're saying just the things they would say if we weren't doing it as a performance, but they're having the experience of what it means to create the performance of the conversation. And I I think that that helps people. One of the teachers I once trained 
does that with middle school students. She shows them a videotape of um, a, a very high-level college classroom. I think she shows them a classroom at Harvard having a discussion, and she asks them to imitate that in the conversations they're having. And, and I loved that idea. I thought that was brilliant. And so I do some of that with my college students as well. Um, you know, I I, I think that I find this a moral imperative, if you will. I think if you look at how those two-year-olds, your two-year-old grand twins are, are learning, and you look at what's happening by the time kids are 16 or 17, that's a crime. I think we've made many, many people dumber by virtue of how we do learning and separate it from play. I, I don't think it's a little thing. I think we, I think if you watch kids in third, fourth, fifth grade in many schools, you see them getting less smart. And I think it has something to do with our lack of playfulness um, and our playing with challenging, rigorous activities, not not making play just something you do on the side. Not that I don't value the pointless play that you do on the side. That's incredibly important as well. You've shared uh, several examples of of how we kind of naturally play when we're younger and how that shifts and becomes less so and, and less encouraged and less valued. So do you find yourself in certain situations, certain audiences where – the suggestion of what you're you've been advocating here becomes quite controversial, and people disagree with you about the importance and value of play. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, like I said, I think many many people are immediately hooked into it and turned on by it. But um, the um, some co- co- my colleagues of mine, the, actually the founder of the East Side Institute where I work, and the founder of the All-Stars Project, which is a youth development program that I'm on the board of directors of. Um, so those two people wrote a paper recently called Let's Pretend, and it's a um, suggestion for solving the education crisis in America. And it essentially says if all the children and all the adults in schools, including their parents and their communities, decided to pretend or pretended that everybody was a, everybody's a learner, that we would solve the education crisis. And that's an incredibly provocative suggestion. But I think at its heart where people's um, response to it when they are provoked by it, one of the things they're provoked by is the seriousness with which we take play and that it is in pretending to be a speaker that babies learn to speak. It is in pretending to be somebody who can eat at the table, that we learn to eat at the table, and pretending to ride a bicycle, that we ride a bicycle, and that that kind of pretending is what's needed in this moment, given the crisis we're in in education. That kind of play and pretending is what's, it's not frivolous, it's very, very serious and very important. And I think people are immensely provoked by that, in part because I think it, it challenges some of our basic ideas about what's important in the world um, and about what's true and what's not. And, yes, I, I find people very, very provoked by that. Um, luckily, also intrigued, and that that's the fun part. I, I like to provoke people. I've chosen I, I think your idea of pretending is, is quite interesting um, in terms of the positive aspect of pretending that leads us to creating reality 
and it's reminded me that I've been thinking a lot lately sort of on the on the, some of the criticisms we all talk about in education around what testing has done to creativity mm-hmm. and learning. Um, and, and, and what I've been thinking about is how much we seem to pretend that what we're doing with testing or that the results that are there have actually um, helped us understand how learning is happening when, in fact, it seems so often it really doesn't tell us much of anything, but we pretend as if it is the the key way we understand whether learning is happening or not. I, I agree. So this, this notion of pretending, I think, on, on both ends of that spectrum uh, is something it seems we should play with much more in a national conversation about this topic. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think also in some ways I'm saying let's take back pretend. <laughs> Let's um, you know, let's have it as a as a tool we can use because obviously it's used in all sorts of ways, and I, I completely agree. I think we've all been that that we have we have at this moment. It appears in many ways failed to create an education system that's helping many, many, many children. Um, and so I I I think something as powerful and serious as pretending is what's needed. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here uh, with the phone to my ear, shaking my head. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm reminded that uh, Ken Robinson talks about creativity as you to create, you need to take action. So I wonder what you have to say about um, play and creativity. Are they the same thing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, 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 I've been thinking about that question. Um, I don't think they are the same thing, but I think I think when I think about creativity, I think about mundane creativity, the creativity we're doing right now and creating a conversation we've never created before, the creativity that people do when they go out on a first date, or the creativity of um, cooking dinner. I think we don't we don't look enough at at, at um mundane creativity and the ordinary seeing ourselves as creators. So back to, I think, what I said at the beginning, I think play in in many forms reminds us that we are creators. And that's the kind of creativity I'm, I'm interested in. It's not that I don't love a gorgeous painting or a Beethoven symphony or any of those things. I think they're amazing. But I think it's the ordinary reconnection that we're all creators and that it's not the products that are as important as the process of creating. And I think play is all about process. It's, I mean, it's not all about process, but it has it shifts the focus, if you will, from product to process. And in that way, I think it's very, very much about creativity. Um, at the Institute, actually, we're offering a class coming up on the power of creativity in June. It's an online class, and there'll be people from probably 10 or 15 countries in the world participating, having a conversation, reading the different experts on creativity, but in particular taking a look at what is ordinary, mundane creativity, where pe- which is what's needed, I think, to solve some of the really untenable problems we're facing as a species. I think of what happened in Egypt as an amazing example of creativity. Yeah. That actually is one of the sessions that I'm involved with at the conference I mentioned at the top of the show, the, the Creativity Play and Imagination Across Disciplines. Um, it's on creativity and social change, and I've been thinking about examples like Egypt and 
And again, even coming back to education in this country of, you know, how, how an experience like Egypt might actually happen within education in this country, what might that look like? And I think so many of the themes you've just described around playing and pretending and creating are the roots of how that, that might actually happen in this country in terms of shifting education. I, I agree. I think play, and it's it's like an inch away, and until you, you, until you reach it, it seems like it's miles away, that kind of change. And I think the examples of the last year have shown that you've you, you got to be ready because you never know. Yep. And, yeah, and that, that literally can change overnight. Yeah. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on Creativity and Play. Thank you both very much. It's been a pleasure. Have a, have a great afternoon, everybody. Thanks. Carrie Lohmann is Associate Professor at the Rutgers University Graduate School of Education, and she'll be leading the Playground event this Friday night in New York City at 7 o'clock at the Eastside Institute if you're looking for more information. And you can listen to this show and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dalbert. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Carrie, for joining us today. Thank you so much to both of you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.